All glories, all glories to Shri Shri Guru and Gauranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Ajnana Tevarandasya Janajana Shalakaya Chakshurumitam Jaina Tasmai Shri Guruve Namaha. I was born in the darkest ignorance, and my spiritual master opened my eyes with the torch of knowledge. I offer my respectful obeisances unto him. Sri Chaitanya Manovistam Stapitam Jaina Bhutale Swayam Rupa Kadamayam Tadatitswa Padantikam When will Srila Rupa Goswami Prabhupada, who has established within this material world the mission to fulfill the desire of Lord Chaitanya, give me shelter under his lotus feet? Vancha kalpa terubhyasya kripasanubhayavacha patita nam pavanebhyo vaishnavebhyo namonamaha. I offer my respectful obeisances unto the Vaishnav devotees of the Lord. They are just like desire trees and can fulfill the desires of everyone. And they are full of compassion for the fallen conditioned souls. Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Advaita Gadadhar Shri Vasadi Gaurabhaktivrinda. I offer my respectful obeisances unto Shri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Lord Nityananda, Shri Advaita, Gadadhar Pandit, Shri Vastakur, and the devotees of Lord Chaitanya. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. So today is Tuesday, April 13th, 2021. And we are reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Creation. Chapter 6, Conversation Between Narada and Vyasadeva. Text 38. Aho Devarshi Danyayam. Yat kirtim sarnagadhanvanana. Gayan madhyanidam tantra. Ramayati aturyam jagat. Aho devarshidhanyoyam. Yet kirtim sangadanvana. Gayan madhyan idam tantra. Ramya yati aturam jagat. Aho devarshidhanyo yam. Yet kirtim sadgarnavana. Gayan madhyanidam tantra. Ramayata aturam jagat. Aho, all glory to Devarshi. 
the sage of the gods, Tanya, all success, Ayamyat, one who, Kirtim, glories, Sharnga, then Vana, of the personality of Godhead, Gayan, singing, Madhyan, taking pleasure in, Idam, this, Tantra, by means of the instrument, Ramyayati, enlivens, Aturam, distress, Jagat, world. Translation and purport by His Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Srila Prabhupada. All glory and success to Srila Narada Muni because he glorifies the activities of the personality of Godhead. And so doing, he himself takes pleasure and also enlivens all the distressed souls of the universe. Purport. Sri Narada Muni plays on his instrument to glorify the transcendental activities of the Lord and to give relief to all miserable living entities of the universe. No one is happy here within the universe, and what is felt as happiness is Maya's illusion. The illusory energy of the Lord is so strong that even the hog who lives on filthy stool feels happy. No one can be truly happy within the material world. Srilanara the Muni, in order to enlighten the miserable inhabitants, wanders everywhere. His mission is to get them back home, back to Godhead. That is the mission of all genuine devotees of the Lord, following the footsteps of that great sage. Thus end the Bhaktivedanta purports of the first canto, sixth chapter of the Srimad Bhagavatam, entitled, Conversation Between Narada and Vyasa. So there's three key points that are mentioned in today's um, verse and purport. Happiness in the material world, glorifying the Lord, and the mission of the devotees. Prabhupada says, no one can truly be happy within the material world, and yet we want to be happy. There's a story, I don't know if it's a joke or if it's a true story, but um, a teacher assigns you know, the children of her class um, an assignment. What do you want to be when you grow up? And one kid turns in a paper that says, happy. And she says, I don't think you understand this assignment. And he's, he responds, I don't think you understand life. Right? Because even as a child, we know that happiness is something that we want. And if we look at that, why is happiness something that we want? Why is that something that we pursue? And it's because that is the true nature of who we are. Right? Our spirit soul, we're eternally full of bliss and knowledge. So we're eternally Full of bliss. That's our nature. That's our constitutional position to be happy. And yet we're in a place that we can't really find happiness. And when we do find happiness, it's very temporary. So that's the big problem with happiness in the material world is that it's fleeting. It's, you know, we have these fleeting moments of joy, of happiness that we constantly seek, right? We might think, okay, what's going to make me happy? You could say, oh, it's a big house, a fancy car, a nice family. 
right? There have been times where, like, I remember when I first got um, the furniture in my apartment, my house, right? The, it was brand new, it was comfortable, and I, you know, the first few days, it's like you look at it, you make sure everything's arranged. Now it's just like, whatever, it's a couch that's in my house, right? It's no longer this, oh, wow, brand new thing that I like to explore. Same thing whenever I get anything new, right? Like in the beginning, it's like exciting and it brings some happiness. And then after a while, you get bored with it and you're like, okay, what's next? But everything's like that in the material world, really. Like we're always like looking for the next best thing, like next thing that we're looking for. As I've mentioned before, I take a lot of personal development um, classes and courses. And one of them says, you know, we have to constantly be pursuing some goal, you know, when you reach one goal, you just want to keep constantly reaching another goal. And while I agree with that to some extent, it's it's more dependent on what the goal is. Because if it's like the goal is, okay, I'm going to make a million dollars, and then you make a million dollars, and you're like, okay, now what? The next is, you know, a billion dollars, right? Um, next is to make more money than Jeff Bezos, right? Like, then you just keep pursuing and pursuing, and it's it's the same type of, like, happiness. And I honestly think, you know, is there really that much of a difference between 500,000, you know, half a million and a million in terms of um, taking care of yourself? Is there much of a difference between 300,000, you know, and half a million? I mean, we don't really need that much to survive, and if we just look at... Um, you know, how much do I need just to take care of my own needs so that I can be comfortable? You actually find that you have a little bit more time for happiness, right? Like you're not constantly working super hard all day long that, you know, there is no time to, to sit back and relax and enjoy. So we see this, that we're starting to see there's like a pullback from wanting more and more material stuff, right? Like the, what's that? Marie Kondo, the joy of simple, I forget what she calls it, but basically you go through your house and if you haven't used it in the last six months, and if it doesn't bring you joy and happiness, then you get rid of it. Maybe you give it away, you donate it, but you take it out of your house and you basically are looking at, you know, simple living. There's a lot of movements that I see like, okay, we're not going to buy anything new. We're going to make use of everything that we have, or we're going to um, see what other people have and what we can trade for, right? So we're getting away from this material, like new, branding, shining type of idea, but we're still that's still not the answer, right? We're still looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Krishna says that Um, In 1836, Bhagavad Gita, please hear from me about the three kinds of happiness by which the conditioned soul enjoys and by which one sometimes comes to the end of all distress. So there's three types of happiness, and they're affected by the three modes of material nature, goodness, passion, and ignorance. Happiness in the mode of goodness is that which in the beginning might be just like poison, but at the end is just like nectar, and awakens one to self-realization, is said to be happiness in the mode of goodness. So we pretty much can experience this in any 
endeavor that we make towards the mode of goodness, right? Even just sitting down to meditate, the first time you do it, it can, I mean, I don't know if it's like poison, but it can be very difficult and um, hard to do, right? Our mind goes everywhere. We're thinking about this. It's hard to sit down and think about nothing or focus on our our breathing. Um, even focusing on the mantra, the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra, can be very difficult in the beginning. Even now, after so many years of chanting, it's still, you know, something that I'm constantly endeavoring, striving to focus on. Um, another example is, you know, when we try to change habits, right? When we, one of the things that I'm really working on is having a really nice morning routine. Because they say when you have a nice morning routine, you set your day off right. And it's hard because it takes a lot of discipline to make sure that you're doing what you want to do in the morning. Like, for me, it's chanting my rounds, it's exercising, getting my meals prepared for the day. And I find when I do that in the morning, I have so much more free time during the day because I've already taken care of the morning stuff, right? Like, I've already taken care of the things that I need to do. And I find that I'm a lot more um, focused and uh, productive throughout the day if I get a nice, good morning routine. So when I first started it, it just it felt like poison, like I was being restricted, like I'm... And such a spontaneous, free spirit type person that it was like, oh my God, I have to like stick to this. And so um, it's become a little easier. It's still sometimes a struggle to stick to the morning routine, but it's definitely not like poison or difficult like it was in the beginning. And it's, like I said, I can start to see the nectar in it, right? The, the roots of those results of sticking to a morning routine of, you know, getting up in the morning, reading a Srimad Bhagavatam, of chanting my rounds, of exercising, of eating a nice, healthy breakfast, you know, and then sitting down and um, uh, getting some work done, right? And that also, when I find I do that, I, that also leaves me free to, like, you know, socialize in the afternoons because I'm not so, like, oh, I still have to make my meals or I still have to chant my rounds or... Because everything's kind of done. But it takes a lot of discipline and a lot of, like, okay, we're doing this because I know that I'll have that free time. So that's another way we can see that something that's like poison at the beginning but becomes nectar at the end um, can happen. Also, when we start to eat healthier, right? Some I have a lot of clients, patients that, when they start to eat vegetables because they haven't eaten vegetables before, they don't like the taste or it's really hard for them. But the more they do it, the more they start to relish the taste of vegetables and they start to lose their taste for the things that are not good for them. The healthier they eat, they eat the more healthier they want to eat. <clears throat> so going on to say that Happiness, which is derived from contact of the senses with their objects, which appears like nectar at first, but poison at the end is said to be of the nature of passion. So continuing on with the um, example of food, you know, sometimes we can be like, oh my God, this, this cake is really good. And we can overindulge and have like a big piece and keep eating. But later on, we may have like a stomach ache, or feel kind of ill, get that sugar rush, 
and then you come down from it. Um, if you have diabetes, it can cause your sugars to go really high, and that can cause problems. So that was something that was nectar in the beginning and poison at the end. Even in relationships, right? A lot of times we get into relationships because we think, oh, um, I'm going to be happy if I have a nice partner or a nice spouse. And I've heard oftentimes people complain that, you know, I've heard it said that <clears throat> the things that you find at the beginning of your courtship that you find very attractive, the quirks, things like that, that towards, you know, once you get used to that person, those are the very same things that annoy you. Um, so again, they were like nectar in the beginning and then poison towards the end. And that happiness, which is blind to self-realization, which is delusion from beginning to end, and which arises from sleep, laziness, and illusion, is said to be of the nature of ignorance. So this is happiness in the mode of ignorance. This is, you know, this is where that uh, term, I guess that phrase, ignorance is bliss, comes from. Like, I'm happy not knowing, and I don't want to know, and I, you know, um, I've heard sometimes people say, like, man, I wish I didn't know about, you know, how bad sugar is for you, because now I, I know I can't eat it, right? So it's kind of wanting to stay in that ignorance, um, and so that way you don't have to make the change. Another uh, type of ignorance, uh, happiness in the mode of ignorance is intoxication, um, a lot of times we people take um, drugs or alcohol to find some type of happiness or numb the pain that they're feeling, um, but that doesn't necessarily lead to happiness. So it's in delusion from beginning to end. There's really no happiness that is found there. I think I've told this story before, but I remember one time I was hanging out with some friends and one of the guys just got so drunk, like he was so drunk that he didn't even know where he was. He like vomited on his shirt and then he just started wandering the streets. He lost his phone and then he was looking for his phone and he's telling this story later on as if it was like some um, adventure he went on. And I just thought, wow, you know, there's a lot of people that do this that try to seek happiness and you can see that there is no real happy. I mean, he was miserable the whole time, you know, like cold, looking for his phone, vomiting on himself. There's no happiness there. But we've kind of deluded ourselves to thinking this is how we can relax and enjoy. Um, we can also see, like, uh, there's so many different ways that we can see this. There's, as I was mentioning before, we don't want to... No, right? We see this a lot, too, where um, people have, um, I think I said that already. So what we're really looking for is eternal happiness, because all of these things, they don't really last, right? Just like, do I have it here? So there's the happiness, I don't, I don't think I have it here, but um, in the Bhagavad Gita it says, 
happiness and distress come and go just like the seasons, right? So it's just, it's cyclical. You know, there'll be times of happiness and there's going to be times of distress and they're going to go back and forth. And that's just the way the world is. That's just the way things go. There'll be times where you're good and there'll be times where it's not as good. But we want it to be happy all the time. And the way we do that is we find transcendental happiness. We connect to what is permanent. And and for us, inside of us, our soul, who we truly are, is permanent. And we're covered by this outer covering of the body. And we associate so much with the body, that's where this um, distress comes from. But the soul itself is always happy. So if we tap into who we truly are, then we can really feel that happiness, right? We tap into Krishna, we connect to Krishna, God. And then we can say, okay, I'm, I'm, you start to feel that bliss. And it lasts. Like, you know, after a kirtan, there's that bliss that you feel. It's never like that, okay, what's next, right? There's that, I just want more of the kirtan, but there's not like, I need something different from this, like you would, if you get a car, right? You get a brand new car, and you're like, okay, you drive it around for a few years, and you're like, what's next? A kirtan, I don't know, I've been able to listen to kirtans my whole life, and I'm never like, okay, next. I'm like, more, right? Because there's there's that higher vibration of the kirtan, of the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra, that taps into that pure, eternal bliss that we are. The Prabhupada states in the Bhagavad Gita um, purport 253, the highest perfection of self-realization is to understand that one is eternally the servitor of Krishna and that one's only business is to discharge one's duty in Krishna consciousness. So here we can understand that as we tap into who we truly are, servants of Krishna, our only business is to discharge our duties in Krishna consciousness. Prabhupada doesn't say here, give up your duties. Prabhupada doesn't say here, do nothing. He's saying, whatever you do, do it with Krishna consciousness. Think of Krishna. Even Krishna says that. And once we begin to attract ourselves to Krishna, connect ourselves to Krishna, to God, the all-attractive, then we we lose our taste for this temporary happiness slowly. It happens slowly. Just like I was describing before, when someone starts to eat healthier and they um, start to gain the taste for vegetables, they start to lose the taste for the things that are unhealthy for them. So in that same way, when we start getting that taste, that transcendental bliss that's that really taps into our true nature, then we start to lose that pleasure of what the temporary material world. And in, and gradually, it's not like we all of a sudden we hear the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra once and all of a sudden we have no attraction to the material world whatsoever. But slowly, slowly, right, step by step, we start to, to diminish our desires. And 
sometimes it happens very slowly. Like, you know, if I compare myself to 10 years ago, I'm kind of surprised that um, I have some of the, I say some of the things that I say. Because 10 years ago or so, I probably would never have said something like, oh, you know, just minimal things to keep myself comfortable. Because I would have been like, no, I want, you know, extra, not just minimal. I want more. And, you know, I do understand that what's minimal comfortable for me may not may be more than what's minimal comfortable for someone else, and it may be less than what's minimal comfortable for someone else as well. So we all have that what's minimal comfort for our own needs, um, but, you know, it's kind of important to realize what's that minimal comfort, what's more than that, what's luxury, what's wants, what's desires, and what's what are needs. So we're talking about, you know, transcendental happiness. And one way that we tap into the transcendental happiness is to glorify Krishna. And there's so many ways that we can glorify Krishna. In the purport, it says, Sri Narada Muni plays on his instrument to glorify the transcendental activities of the Lord. So one way I already mentioned is um, singing kirtan, right, with musical instruments, we can glorify Krishna. We can glorify him by speaking about his pastimes. You know, when he came on earth, what he does, who he hangs out with, what he, you know, his adventures that he gets into, um, mischief that he gets into. All of those things that we, when we speak of those, we glorify him. We glorify him when we chant japa, you know, even though it's to ourselves, you know, we're chanting in such a way that we can hear the ver- you know, we're speaking it so we can hear it, um, but that's glorifying him. We can read, right, reading the Srimad Bhagavatam, reading the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna book, Chaitanya Charitamrita, doing all these things also glorifies Krishna. Eating prasadam, food that has been offered to God, to Krishna first, and become sanctified. And when we eat that, we glorify Krishna. We also glorify Krishna by spreading um, Lord Chaitanya's mission, right? Lord Chaitanya's mission is, um, well, actually, Prabhupada says it in the last sentence, this is the mission of all genuine devotees of the Lord following the footsteps of Sri the Muni. And Srila Prabhupada says preaching is the essence. So that's another way that we can glorify Krishna. We can glorify our, our guru, our spiritual master, by preaching. Prabhupada said that this is our main activity, our most important business, and it comes first. He said many times that he wants everyone to become first-class preachers. And in Bhagavad Gita, 1868 and 69, Krishna says, For one who explains the supreme secret to the devotees, pure devotional service is guaranteed. And at the end, they will come back to me. There is no servant in this world more dear to me than them, nor will there ever be one more dear. So Krishna is guaranteeing us that if we just um, glorify him, explaining his transcendental pastimes, explaining the supreme secret that we will come back to Krishna, that we will go back to um, the spiritual world 
and really, you know, be who we are, be our eternal selves. And so, you know, one of the ways that we can preach is, you know, giving class or sharing knowledge, discussing it. Sometimes it's easier to know what you don't know when you have to explain it. Sometimes you understand it better when you have to explain it. Sometimes, like, in general, too, when I'm explaining something, I'm like, oh, okay, I get it now. Because I'm also explaining it to myself. So um, that's one way that we can uh, glorify and spread Krishna's glories. And when I was in medical school and in residency, we have this saying, see one, do one, teach one. So we see a procedure, we do it, and then we teach it. And by the time we teach it, we're kind of considered experts. It's the same concept here. right? We can read it, we can um, implement it into our lives, and then teach others about it. And the best way to teach is really by example. So, you know, I've heard it said, you don't want to be like a flashlight looking around, finding, you know, finding people. You want to be like a lighthouse. A lighthouse just shines and the boats come to the lighthouse. So if we are implementing and following these, you know, these practices of glorifying Krishna, of chanting japa, of eating prasadam, of kirtan, of reading, um, follow, you know, trying to get ourselves up to the mode of goodness, we're naturally going to attract people right? as that lighthouse. They're going to come to us. I've had many times people ask, oh, you know, what is it that you are doing? How do you, you know, stay calm? Or how do you um, meditate? You know, and then that gives me an opportunity to 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 answer because they're asking. Um, and you know, one of the main things as devotees of Krishna, as Vaishnavas, is we have compassion, right? We have compassion for the fallen, conditioned souls because we know that this material world is temporary and it's miser it's miserable. You know, and everybody's suffering here. And as compassionate souls, we, we don't want people to suffer. We want to pull them out of that suffering. So, you know, the best way to do that, again, like I said, is, is by example. And then, of course, by implementing our own strengths and dharma in Krishna's service in that way, right? So if somebody's really good at approaching strangers and engaging them in conversations, and then being able to give them a book will then, you know, definitely engage in those activities. For someone who's not as good at that, you know, being able to pick up a conversation with someone they don't know, maybe it's just having great conversations with your friends. Um, you know, relationships that we can foster with people are kind of the most important things that it's actually one of the key things of when you look at personal development, they talk about happiness. It's having good relationships, right? And we know as devotees that if we have our relationships grounded and the foundation is based in Krishna, right? Serving Krishna together, how can we serve each other so that we can all serve Krishna? Then that can lead to really strong relationships. But if you have someone that's not, you know, 
they're not necessarily Krishna conscious or they have some other beliefs or maybe they're atheistic, then we just serve them where they're at. You know, we, we understand, we listen to them where they're at, we offer advice if they want it, if they don't, we just listen and, you know, be there for them. But we also don't compromise who we are for anyone else, right? We stand strong in our own beliefs and our principles, and that can be very attractive for a lot of people. So when you do that, then they want to know what you're doing, and it strengthens your relationship. One of the things that, you know, of taking this business course, and what they say is when you are marketing, um, you want to relate to people on, on common ground, right? You tell stories that relate to them, right? So, you know, we also most often relate to each other with our struggles. Because if they say, oh, you know, look at, well, you're like already got it figured out. You're happy. You've been, you know, doing chanting around Krishna your whole life. It's easy for you. But if I say, you know, well, I struggled with this. And then I found an answer, and now I'm like this. You know, I found some joy, found some happiness. It may work for you, right? So I'm just telling you what I did, and it worked for me. People relate to that more than if I just like, oh, I have it all figured out, and, you know, this is great. You know, this is happiness. They, they want to see how you got there, the struggles that you had to get there. So that was one of the things that I've learned in my marketing class is that you kind of want to make sure that you you share those struggles that we have with each other, with people, because then they can relate to that. Because the material world is so full of misery and we're all having our own struggles and challenges, we're going to relate more on that than we are on, you know, our joy and victories and bliss, right? Because most people don't experience that. And when you talk about that only, it usually it can sometimes foster envy in people's hearts. Or, you know, they think, oh, nothing's ever that good, so it must be too good to be true. Or, you know, they, they write it off because it doesn't seem attainable for them. So... What we want to do is make sure that we are accessible for people, right? We are planting seeds of Krishna consciousness everywhere we go and make it accessible for everyone. Not everyone will take it up, but if somebody's ready, right? I always talk about the example of when we're ready to turn to Krishna. Krishna's ready. He's always ready for us. So if we are making ourselves accessible, then Krishna can work through us as the way to um, come to people. In Bhagavad Gita 3.26, it says, So it's not to disrupt the minds of the ignorant persons attached to the fruit of results of prescribed duties. A learned person should not induce them to stop work. Rather, by working in the spirit of devotion, one should engage them in all sorts of activities for the gradual development of Krishna consciousness. So this is where we're, you know, Krishna's saying, like, relate to them. Don't disturb them. Um, don't put them in anxiety. 
Don't put them into difficulty. Just, you know, let them know that there are other ways. There is something else that we can do. There's a higher purpose here, not just, you know, the rat race. So that's all I have for today. What questions do you have? Sometimes it, it seems like that varies um, because although the holy name's the same, the deities are the same, um, people are the same, but they sometimes devotees in kirtan are literally jumping for joy. Like I've seen kirtans where devotees are doing cartwheels and flips, um, going underneath everybody, spinning helicopter thing, all dancing, running back and forth. So much bliss that it's just like it's bounding with bliss. And then other times kirtans can be uh, more like obligatory, like, you know, all right, it's time we have to have the kirtan. And there's, it doesn't appear as blissful. So why is there sometimes kirtans blissful and sometimes I think the key word there is look, perceptions. Right. So um, it all depends on the person who's sitting, whoever's watching, their own mindset, what's going on with them at that particular moment. Are they engaged or are they elsewhere in their mind? Right. They may be sitting here physically, but their mind may be thinking about got to go to work tomorrow, I've got this or that, engaged in the moment. I've been at a kirtan where it's where you're describing, where it's like, you know, people jumping around up and down, and I don't feel the bliss. And I've been at a kirtan where it seems like, you know, it's real calm, and I feel the bliss. Right? Um, so I, I would say it's not what it looks like, it's more how it feels. And that varies person to person. I can tell you when I was much younger, I used to really relish the jumping up and down, running around, dancing type kirtan. And now I really take, like I feel like I delve even deeper when we're just like sitting down and able to like concentrate more on the holy name than the movements. Um, but then, that, you know, it also depends on how the energy is of everyone else. Or sometimes I'm sitting in kirtan and I'm just like scrolling through my phone, checking email. And other times it's like I wouldn't even think about going to my phone. And it all depends on my own personal, what's going on in my mind. 